Am I live? Live without a net? Hey, there it is. If you got your Bibles with you tonight, let's open it up to Deuteronomy. We'll continue going through Moses' commentary on the law as we check out what he has to say for us. I know last week um, we talked about a few things and I had some questions afterwards, so I thought I'd uh, help uh, clarify if anybody else had similar questions. We had talked last time about, is this light out? Oh, you're beautiful. Without that, I need more than glasses. <laughs> it's okay. <clears throat> we talked about um, the, uh, several different things, but one of the things we talked about dealt with uh, the charge of rape and whether or not, when or whether a charge of rape would come. And one of the things that, that the Bible laid out for us is if they were in the country... Didn't matter, it was, it was rape. If a man took a woman, if she said it was rape, it was rape. That's how it went. Uh, and he would uh, be stoned for his trespass against her. The Bible says if it's in the city, then both of them are at fault. And some people had some questions in regard to that. How can that be? I mean, what's the difference? Our problem is, you and I, when we read the Bible, we put our city in there. You can't put our cities in Our cities would be what the Bible would call country. If you've ever been to a Middle Eastern city, especially at the time of the scriptures that we're reading, it is compact. If I was standing in the middle of Main Street, I would be able to put my hand on the shop to my left, and I'd be able to put my hand on the shop to my right. The houses would be directly above that. Several houses together. They didn't have yards. They didn't have, you know, big plots of land. That was all in the country. In the city... Everything was compact and everybody was pushed together. So the words laying out for in that situation, <clears throat> the consent was implied. Because short of consent, everybody else would know what was going on. Okay, so don't try to plug in like Boise and say, oh, well, you know, Boise spread out compared to Middle Eastern cities of the time. So we have to be careful as we go through and as we take a look at the law that we understand this law is God's progressive revelation to his people and it met their needs where they were at at their time. Okay? So we, we want to try to w- t- take the wisdom, the nuggets from God's word, what God has laid out for us here. But at the same time, we don't want to try to plug everything into this uh, because we find ourselves in a dispensation of grace. God's ministering to his people today in a slightly different way it doesn't mean the law is bad it just means that it's that it's a different situation we find ourselves in today so as we look today we look at chapter 23 beginning at verse 1 and this is how it begins you guys will be excited about this he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the lord now in case you don't know what that means that is dealing with a eunuch either made a eunuch by his own hands or born a eunuch. The idea is that if if a man had his manhood stripped from him, for example, Daniel was a eunuch, made a eunuch, that God had a very specific order in regard to whether or not they could enter into the assembly. Now, there's a couple of things we got to look at when we look at this. When the Lord's saying whether or not they could enter into the assembly... It is implying leadership in the nation of Israel 
and leadership in regard to their worship. So the Lord's laying out. Now, as God lays out his law, he's already told us, in, as he lays out for us his design, his plan, he said, be perfect as I am perfect. Right? Be holy as I am holy. Because at this time, as God is laying out his design for the people, he's laying out for them his requirements. What do we learn from that? I fall short. The scripture would lay out for us, for we fall short. We fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. We need what? God's grace, God's forgiveness. So the Lord laying out that for us, he wants us to understand, hey, my requirement goes across the board, perfect. What did the sacrifice have to be? Perfect, right? Absolutely perfect. Any blemish in the sacrifice would not be accepted uh, as an offering to the Lord. Same way for those who would lead or those who would come uh, before the Lord. So as we take a look, the other thing we want to understand is this was rampant in pagan worship. And it was instituted in the church around 300 A.D. Okay? So what do I mean by that? Well, we have within the church today this this concept of uh, a priest being set aside, set apart, that he would never wed, never be married, never... That all comes from pagan worship. And in order to be really holy... The pagans would emasculate themselves. They would make themselves eunuch and say, now I'll never be drawn away by that lust or any of that stuff. I'll just wholly be able to focus on the Lord. And what God is saying is that's a work of the flesh and it's never going to measure up. It's never going to measure up. Right? By By the works of the flesh, can we please God? Hebrews is very clear. If we want to please the Lord, we can please him how? By faith. We believe. We believe, we entrust ourselves to him. That is how a man will please God, not by making cuttings on his flesh. So it entered into the church, this idea of being holier meant that I was abstaining from marriage. Does that have anything to do with our relationship with God and our ability to attain to holiness? Does that have anything to do with it? Understand, in around 300 A.D., the church became recognized. Up until that time, being a member of the church was illegal. But at that time, and roughly, I'm not going to give you exact dates, but roughly at that period of time, the leader, actually prior to Constantine, it's not Constantine, Constantine's going to issue his edict of uh, toleration, but it actually begins to occur prior to him. And what occurs is they begin to now go into the pagan temples. And this pagan temple which was worshiping the sun god. And Rome would say, you know what? Christianity is now the approved religion. And they walked into the temple of the sun god. And they said, now you're a priest. But you're not a priest to the sun god. You're a priest to Jesus Christ the son. And they changed the names of everything. But all the holy days... All the holidays, all those things remain the same. And that's how they came into the church. That's exactly why Christmas is celebrated on December 25th. Has nothing to do with Christ being born. Has everything to do with the winter solstice. It's why Easter 
is the way Easter is because it was the originally the, the worship of Ishtar. Now, I'm not getting into whether or not that's okay because when I celebrate Easter, I'm celebrating the resurrection of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I understand that. I acknowledge that. But along that time, as the world infiltrated the church, as Satan made peace, quote-unquote, with the church, all those pagan rituals entered in. And we had a priesthood, the head of which would be called Pontifex Maximus, which was the title given to the high priest of the Babylonian religion, which moved its center to Rome and entered into the church. Okay, I'm not trying to say that, that all of those traditions in the, in the church, we see it typically in, in Catholic churches. I'm not trying to say all Catholic churches are bad and everything's wrong. I'm just telling you that the world infiltrated the church around 300 AD, and it's, that's where those practices came from. So when you wonder why, why do we have this concept where a priest never marries? That's where it came from. It was a part of pagan practices, and it entered into the church when the church became politically correct. And, and it was okay. And now, no longer were you dying for your faith. Now everyone was coming. Satan found that was a little easier tactic in regard to uh, making an attack against the church. So... That's where some of those things came from. Back here in the Bible, we see the Lord saying, hey, no, that doesn't have anything to do with your holiness to me. In fact, if you do that, you're not going to be able to be a part of that leadership. And keep that in mind when it says the assembly of the Lord. Most <clears throat> Jewish commentaries, uh, which I tend to like to lean in, especially when I'm studying the Old Testament, particularly because it do, deals with the nation of Israel and with Jews, that that's how they interpret, that's what they see in the, in the scripture. Now, he goes on in verse 2. One of illegitimate birth will not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, as we look at this, there's two things that you need to recognize. One, the word for illegitimate is the word for that person who is born from incest. That's the concept that he's focused in on. And you'll notice... In verse 2, then he's going to move to two peoples, two people groups. Ammonites and the Moabites, right? We got Ammonites and the Moabites beginning in, uh, or Amorites and the, and the Moabites beginning in verse 3. How did those two people groups begin? Where did they have their foundation? They had their foundation in Lot and his two daughters. And his two daughters thought that the whole world was going to end and they'd never have children. They got their father drunk and were impregnated by their father. One gave birth to a son called, uh, and he became the leader of the, the Amorites. The other, the leader of the Moabites. Okay, so similar situation, although God's going to bring a, a, another condemnation against them. These groups are held out for how long? Ten generations, right? They're, they're held back for ten generations. It's an interesting point because we're going to see in Scripture... Uh, that actually come into play. Listen, verse 3 says, an, uh, an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord forever. The, the concept is two things that you want to grasp. One, the language points to that they're speaking in the masculine to the men. Moabite and Ammonite men. That's going to be important because we have a book of the Bible called Ruth. 
And Ruth was a Moabitess, right? Ruth was a Moabitess. So this again, uh, the language seems to point in the masculine toward men. But it doesn't make any difference because when we look at Ruth and we look at her children, you know what we discover? We discover about the time we come to the king of Israel, whose name is David, who was born through Ruth. He was, guess what number generation? Yeah, he's past the ten generations. He enters in. We have uh, Phares, and then Phares begets Hezron, Hezron Ram, Ram Aminadab, Aminadab Nashon, Nashon Salmon, Salmon Boaz, Boaz Obed, Obed Jesse, Jesse David. So we fulfill the requirement uh, of the law to go unto the tenth generation by the time we reach the next king of Israel, the one after God's own heart. But here's what the Lord has to say about the Ammonites and the Moabites in verse 4. Here's why he says, keep them out of the assembly, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pathor, from Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. In the book of Numbers, Moses coming to the land um, of the the Ammonites and the, the Moabites, he asked for passage through their lands. He says, I won't eat nothing and we won't get off the roads. We'll, we'll buy food from you. We'll do, we just want to pass through. They said no. Not only did they say no, but the king, realizing that the battle was not a battle that could be won by might of arm, went and hired a prophet named Balaam, who came in an attempt to curse the children of Israel. God would not allow him to curse them. We read about all that in Numbers chapter 20, uh, 22 and 23. You remember Balaam the prophet? He's the one that the donkey spoke to. He beat his donkey, and the donkey said, why are you beating me? And he's so angry, he doesn't think anything of it. He answers the donkey, has a little conversation there prior to realizing that there's an angel standing in his path and won't let him cross. As a result of that decision by the Ammonites and the Moabites, God says, they're not going to enter into my assembly. They're not going to enter into my assembly. They're going to stay separate. My people are going to stay separate from them, even into the 10th generation. Now, he goes on now to verse 7. Let's look at Edom, the Edomites. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. What is special about the Edomite? Edomites are relatives of a guy named Esau. He had a brother named Jacob. Jacob and Esau, right? Esau was the firstborn. Jacob was the one whom the hand of the Lord was upon. He became Israel. And the twelve sons became the twelve tribes of Israel. His brother, Jacob's brother, was Esau. Esau is the father of the Edomites. And the Lord says, don't you hate him. They're your brother. You guys are related. So he says, with the Edomites, I don't want you to hate him. Now, the Edomites did not always treat Israel very well. And later on, we're going to see some other things occur that, uh, that change their place in regard to how the Lord regards them. But here at this point, the Lord lays out, do not abhor an Edomite. He's your brother. He's your brother. He's part of your family. L- listen to this. And you shall not abhor an Egyptian because you are an alien in his land. What? 
I mean, the Egyptians didn't treat them all that great, did they? Listen, here's what the Lord says. You went into Egypt 70, you came out two and a half million. So God says, don't hate them. You flourished in that time. You flourished in that time, so don't hate the Egyptian. Realize and recognize. So the, the deeper spiritual meaning that God's saying is, sometimes the things you go through are for your good. They're not enjoyable. They're not something you... You're, you're going to look back on with fondness and say, oh, wow, I'm really excited about the 400 years I spent as a slave. But rather the Lord says, that time was good for you. Don't abhor an Egyptian. Who put the children of Israel in Egypt for that 400 years? God did. God did. There are things we go through that are part of God's plan for our life. So what do we need to do? We need to recognize, we need to have eyes to see that the things that occur in my life pass through the hands of a God who loves me. If that is true, since that is true, I'm not to hate all those people that were involved in those things. I'm not to hate them. I'm to just trust my Lord. He knows what he's doing and he is able to understand who truly had evil intent and who didn't. Can I? No, of course I can't. I promise you, none of you can. Why? Because if you're married, every once in a while, you think your husband or wife has evil intent. Don't you? They did that on purpose just to make me mad. No, he didn't. He honestly just forgot. How can that be possible? I've told him at least a hundred times, take out the trash before he goes away in the morning. And he left the trash. He does not love me. If he loved me, he took it out. No, we're just dumb sometimes and we forget. I constantly, not constantly, I constantly try to affirm to my wife, uh, I'm not trying to make any statement about you or my love for you when I forget to take out the trash or, or fill the ice trays. Or do the dishes. You know, those, that's not what we're trying to say. The point being, hey, we need to trust God. Because in the bigger relationships around us, we think someone meant evil for us. But what do we learn from Joseph's life? Though those, those guys meant evil toward him, what did God mean it for? He meant it for good, right? He said, God meant that for good. To do what? To build a nation. From 70 to 2.5 million God did a pretty cool thing during that period of time. So he says, don't hate the Egyptians. Now let's go on. He says, now because you were an alien in his land, so the children of the third generation born to them may enter into the assembly of the Lord. So God makes it that opening for them to be able to be a part. When the army goes out against your enemies, keep yourself from every wicked thing. Now, guys, this is so important for them. It's so important for them to understand. What are we looking at here as we read these things that were in the law? We're looking at Moses' final words to a generation that's entering into spiritual warfare for a spiritual land to enter into a promised land that is filled with opportunity for them to fail, fall, and find themselves in adultery. And Adultery speaking of idol worship find themselves in a place they never thought they'd be. I would never do something like that, where they would find themselves in the Valley of Hinnom sacrificing their children. And so the, the Lord, through Moses, is saying, when you guys enter into the battle, 
All that stuff that you think looks so cool is going to kill you. So stay away from it all. What do we find our own children wanting to do? Play a little bit with them wicked things. Well, what did I do? I played a little bit with the wicked things. I, 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 I was drawn to the darkness. Why? Because Satan's an idiot and it just happens on accident? Satan knows what he's doing, doesn't he? The Bible even lays out that sin is enticing for a season. It looks good until you get into it. What's the wages of sin? Death. That's where it's taking us, right? That's where these wicked things will take you. So he's saying very specifically, when the army goes out, keep yourselves from every wicked thing. And if there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. Now, when we're looking at this, again, we look it up with many of the, the Jewish commentaries of that time and the Talmud and, and, and other areas that we can, uh, we can take a look at. <clears throat> They're saying that this scripture is speaking of the Levitical camp, the camp within the camp. And if anything makes him unclean, Go outside, clean yourself, and come back. Go outside. You take yourself away from the encampment, away from where you, as someone who is now unclean, can make someone else unclean, and wash yourself, cleanse yourself. You have the the cleaning ritual that you would go through, and the next night, enter back into the camp. The point that God is making is don't allow anything to stain your life and just think you can play around with it and mess with it and ignore it and it's okay and it's not going to affect anybody else. Is that how it works in real life? Does my sin not affect my children? Sure it does. Sure it does. I'm not talking about generational curses. I think those things are... Or foolishness, I think that's what the Bible teaches. What am I talking about? I'm talking about simple examples. If I, by example, teach my kids certain things, my kids will naturally walk in my steps. They're going to follow dad. They're going to go where dad goes, what dad's done. So in the same way, if you're unclean, make yourself right. I, I heard a story one time about, and I forget who it is, if it's D.L. Moody or if it's Augustine, that doesn't matter, an old timer who was walking with the Lord. And as he's crossing the road, he stops in the middle of the road and he says a prayer. And a guy that was with him said, what are you doing? You're hit by a car or a wagon or a chariot, I don't know. But you're going to get hit by something. And he says, listen, I didn't want to take one more step without being right with God. That's a good example to lay out for our kids. He said that the law behind God's cleanliness things for the nation of Israel not only kept them from many of the diseases and issues that we see running rampant across Europe and, and through around the world during that time period, but they also said, if there's anything separating you from me, anything, take care of it. Don't just ignore it. What do we do today? Now, I'm not saying that by, by washing our hands, we can remove that sin from us. What am I saying? We need to deal with that sin. We need to deal with that issue. What does the scripture tell us today? 
The scripture tells us today to cast off, cast aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares you and run the race before you with joy, with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That means if there's something in my life that's sin, don't just play with it. Don't just ignore it. Don't just pretend it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's separating me from my Father. It's causing me to, to trample the blood of Jesus as though it's not important at all. That's what I do when I sin willfully, when I just pretend like everything's okay. God says it's not okay. Deal with it. For at the time of the nation of Israel, it's so important. Don't even sleep in your house tonight. Get away. Get outside the camp. Spend the night outside the camp. Go through the cleansing rituals. Come back in. What's being taught is don't dabble, don't play, don't ignore. Deal with it. Deal with the issues that are going on within you. Deal with those struggles that you have. He goes on and says, Now, but, but it shall be when evening comes that he will wash with water. When the sun sets, he comes back into the camp. It's not a, a situation where you just cast away. It's a situation, deal with the sin, the issue, the, whatever the thing is that separates you from God. For them, it was an attitude of uncleanliness. It could be a hundred different things that would occur to them in the nighttime. But what he's saying is, deal with it. Make your relationship with me right. Come back into fellowship. That's what we want to understand. That's what we want to take from it. Now he goes on to talk uh, more about the cleanliness laws. Also, you will have a place outside the camp where you may go out and you shall have an implement among your equipment. This could be confusing if you read it. It's not confusing at all in the Hebrew. What he's saying is, if you have to go to the bathroom, do it outside the camp and take a shovel with you. Have a shovel in your equipment, in your backpack with you. This shovel, every man is responsible, every person responsible to have their implement, their digging device, so that they can go outside the camp. And when you sit down outside, you will dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. So you go to the, dig a hole, go to the bathroom in a hole, cover the hole. Now, most of us think, wow, that's common sense. I wish that was so. I've been in Peru where most of the houses have to be on stilts because of the floodwaters of the Amazon River. And their bathroom is a hole cut in the floor. The refuse goes straight down into the area where they keep their pigs, their children play, where they have their garden, and they don't understand why disease is rampant in their society. But God knew way back here. And we got to think about it. This was not common practice even in Europe. What do they do with the refuse in Europe? Throw it out the window. I hope you weren't walking by while somebody from a second story was throwing their refuse out the window. That's gross. God said, don't even do that in the camp. Go outside the city. Dig a hole. Get rid of it. Today, we see that as, wow, what a, what, how could anybody live any other way than that? But here, God, thousands of years ago, is saying, this is how you need to do it. Which is why Jerusalem society, or you know, Jewish societies around the world are always cleaner. Always. Especially those that are Orthodox, because they follow the teachings that God laid out 
in his law. He goes on and says, here's the reason in verse 14. This is interesting. Listen. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. Don't do that in here. God's here. Now, let's look at this from, with spiritual eyes. What do you got in your house that if God was knocking on the door outside to come visit you, you'd want to put away before he came in? If there's anything, then when you get home, put it in a fireplace and burn it. If you would put it away if God was there, it shouldn't be in your house. It shouldn't be there. I don't care. It doesn't make any difference what it is, whatever. The Lord said, for the children of Israel, for the camp, for the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. Who is in the midst of you? If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are the temple of God. God takes up residence within you. You can't leave Jesus behind. He comes home with you. He's in your house. The moment you walk in, and all those things that that we may do, we want to remember, God walks in the midst of our camp to deliver you, to give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy. The camp was to be holy. How much more where we live, our houses, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. Now, verse 15, he talks about relationships with slaves. You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. It's interesting because in our country, the Bible was used to establish slavery or verses in the Bible were were misappropriated and misused to say that being a slave was part of God's plan. Just like for royalty, the Bible was misused, right? Because the king's God's choice. So this family is God's choice. You can't ever go against the voice of the king. Which really has nothing to do with the king of England or the king of Spain or the king of France or any of them. But they all pointed their they all pointed their royalty, their royal line back to Christ. And that's how they established their power over their nations. Well, when we look at this, it's talking about any slave outside of the nation of Israel that escaped from their master and came to you, you were not supposed to give him back. If he came to you for sanctuary, he got sanctuary. He's free. You take care of him. Make sure he's going to be okay. If it's a slave, someone... In, remember, a slave in Israel was different from a slave everywhere else, wasn't it? How long could you be a slave in Rome? Forever. Or until some amazing thing occurred and you were able to purchase your freedom. It was designed to keep you a slave forever. In Israel, how long? Seven years. See the difference? So the slave in Israel, that wasn't the case. The slave in Israel was the property of whoever his master was supposed to be treated properly, take care. If you hurt your slave, if you hit your slave, you let him go. You were forfeiting the rest of his time for you. You couldn't just misuse him. It's different than the slave in outside of society. So the Lord says, if a slave comes to you, you don't turn him over to his master. You set him free. And he may dwell with you in your midst. That means he can come right in to the nation of Israel. In the place where he chooses within one of your gates. Where it seems best to him. And you will not oppress him. Does God care how we treat one another in the human race? Beyond more than, I'm not just talking about brother and sister in the body of Christ. Does he care how I treat whoever? 
Does he care how I treat the, the, the guys, uh, the illegal aliens, whether from Mexico or Canada or anywhere else? Does he care how I treat them? He does. He says, don't oppress them. Don't oppress. Now, maybe it's not the most popular thing, but as a nation, we oppress. It's what we do. We oppress the illegal alien. We create the issue, and then we complain about what occurs. We sow the seeds. When you sow to the wind, what do you reap? Whirlwind. And then we wonder why things are occurring the way they are occurring. God says, don't oppress. You treat them just like anybody else. You treat them, and for the nation of Israel, you remember you were also a slave once. You treat them good. You take care of them. You don't, you don't take advantage of the alien within your gates. He goes on in verse 17. There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. Now he's talking about male and female prostitution. And I don't want to get too graphic in regard to the words that are used within the Hebrew. But there is no question at all what they're talking about. In the Hebrew, very, very, very graphic what's being described. So we'll just leave it at male prostitute, female prostitute. The Lord said, that's not, that shouldn't be among you at all. Not at all. What was created by God as a, as a good and beautiful and wonderful thing, the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, is perverted by Satan to bring destruction upon people. Isn't that what we see it doing? God intended that when two lives were united like that, they became one. Echad. A word for spiritual unity. And apart, outside of the confines of marriage, what happens is we lose a piece of ourselves because we join ourselves with someone and then we rip ourselves apart. And then we join ourselves with someone else and we rip ourselves apart. And every time you do, you leave some of you behind and you take some of them with you. And you end up with empty hearts, empty lives, empty people. That's Satan's design for destruction, what God intended as a beautiful thing between husband and wife. No no prostitutes, no, no male nor female within the nation of Israel. There were to be none. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Basically that's saying don't you bring to the Lord the money that was won in that way. The price of a dog was a figure of speech in the Hebraic which talks about the money that was earned by a male prostitute and or the money earned by a female prostitute God said don't bring them to me I don't want a penny from that not a nothing don't bring it don't bring it into my house you remember when Jesus was sold they betrayed innocent blood and Judas brought the 30 pieces of silver and he cast it down at the high priest's feet and he said he didn't want that money anymore and he threw it down it's a price of blood what did they do with that money did they put it in the coffers to the temple why it's blood money it's bad money can't give that money to God 
Isn't it kind of weird that they just betrayed the Son of God to do that? But they're worried about where the coin comes from. The point is God saying, I don't want ill-gotten gain. You go out and you steal a car, sell it, make a bunch of money. Don't tithe off of that. Don't bring that to God. God says, I don't want that. I don't want none of that junk. It's not to come into my house. Keep it out. Keep that stuff away. Keep that stuff away. Now he goes on and says in verse 19, you will not charge interest to your brother. Interest on money or food or anything that is lent at interest. In the nation of Israel, they were not to charge interest to one another. Now, in the original language, what we see here, more specifically, it focuses in on loans that were to get them out of debt. Someone's buried in debt. And like we would see someone going to a, a pawn shop, or we'd see someone going to a loan shark, try to make these high interest crazy loans to get themselves out of trouble to carry them through. Okay, everybody familiar with that in our society? Well, that's the same thing. God's saying, don't, don't do that. If your brother comes to you and he's, he's, he's in debt and he don't have food or he don't, you just, you can loan it to him and expect repayment, but don't charge him nothing. That's your brother. You take care of your brother. You take care of your brother. And that's, a, that's what the Lord was laying out for the, for the nation of Israel. Now, it did not mean that there was no such thing as a loan. Like if, if they sold a house or a piece of property and they sold it to them, they could charge interest on that. The idea is your brother's buried in debt and you're trying to make money off of him. Don't you do it. Don't you, don't you charge him any interest on any of that stuff. You just help your brother. You just help your brother. So he's your brother. He's part of you. In verse 20, to a foreigner you may charge interest. But to your brother you will not charge interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land that you are now entering to possess. What's he saying? Don't rip off your brother to get you by. You trust me that I'm going to take care of you. That's what he's saying. Don't rip off your brother. Don't, don't, don't come up with all these schemes of how you're going to make it. Trust me. I am the one who's going to take care of you. And God's message to us is the same today. Trust me. Trust the Lord. Hey, I've been under it just, just like anybody else. There's a time in, in Kathy and my life, we lost everything. Lock, stock, barrel. All of it. House, cars, all of it. Everything we had, gone. It happens. The Lord lays out, we, when you're going through that stuff, I came up with all these schemes and all these plans, and I did the things that, that, that I felt I should do to protect my family and take care of this stuff. And, but in through the whole thing, I didn't... I, there were times I was trusting the Lord. And then there were times I, couldn't, I just didn't trust Him. I, I, I took matters in my own hand, did my own thing. But God taught me something through all that. He said, you trust me. I'm where your next meal comes from. We think we have control in our life if we have money in the bank. Listen, folks, control is an illusion. Don't forget that. It's an illusion. 
There was a whole generation that went to bed one night thinking they had money in the bank. What did they find out the next day? Was nothing there. It's gone. Oh, my life's out of control. No, it was always out of control. You just didn't know it. Control is an illusion. The power is in the hands of God. And He's able to carry us through. He's able to carry us through those hard times. Those hard times Kathy and I went through didn't destroy us. We're still here. Didn't ruin us. We still have a worthless house in California. <laughs> when we bought it, it wasn't worthless. It's just worthless now. And by the way, <clears throat> that's another side note. If you don't learn the lesson God wants you to learn the first time around the mountain, He'll bring you around it again so you have another opportunity. And this time, we're trusting the Lord. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to trust Him. <clears throat> God is able. God is able. So, <clears throat> that's, that's what we want to understand. <clears throat> to the, the, in verse 21, Listen, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it is not a sin to you. That which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. God says, keep your vow. Well, there's an easy one that comes to mind in our country that is not kept very often. Less than 50% of the time when two people stand before God and say, till death do us part, they didn't mean it. <clears throat> and they can excuse it a hundred different ways. God says, keep your vow. Keep your vows. Keep your promises to God. But I broke my promise. Good. God's mercy to you is new every morning. We are forgiven. We repent. Lord, I was wrong. Forgive me. You're forgiven. God loves you. It doesn't matter what you do. He's not going to love you less. doesn't matter what you do. He's not going to love you more. He loves you with everything he can love you. With an everlasting love, God loves you. Now, as I move forward, keep my vows. What I promise to God, I'm to fulfill. Whatever it is. If I spoke it with my mouth, it's like speaking it to the Lord. Keep your word. Keep your word. Keep your promises. Keep your vows. Verse 24, when you come to your neighbor's vineyard, you can eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. We get carried away with this. So let me explain to you what it says in the Hebrew. It means if you're walking around outside and you're passing by your, your neighbor's vineyard and you're hungry, reach out and take from yourselves what you want of his grapes. And eat them so that you have whatever energy you need and, and carry on. Okay? It does not mean bring a bucket and steal all your neighbor's grapes, which he's going <clears> to <throat> help us understand right here. <clears throat> Eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in a container. Don't steal from. Just, just take what you can hold in your hand and eat a few. Don't, don't get carried away. When you come to your neighbor's standing grain, you can pluck the heads of the grain with your hand. Didn't Jesus and his disciples do this very thing and the Pharisees called him out on it? You remember? 
They were walking by as on the Sabbath. They took the head of grain and they, they threshed the grain in their hands, you know, just running it together in their hands till they had the seed, popping the seeds in their mouth, which was wholly legal under God's law, not under man's. And, or not under man's tradition anyway, taught as God's law. So the Pharisees had a problem with it. Well, that's what the, the, the word is laying out for us here. Hey, just take what you can hold in your hand. Don't go get a sack and steal all your neighbor's grain. But if you're out and you're hungry, there's a head of grain, take it. It's all right. Why? Who gave them the head of that grain? God did. So whose is it? God's. It's not mine? No. God gave it to me. What am I supposed to do with that grain when I bring it in, when I harvest that grain? I'm to bring an offering of first fruits to the Lord and thank Him for what He gave me. It's God's. It's God's. We want to keep that in mind as we take a look. <clears throat> he says, But you will not take a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Okay? Not stealing, just taking handfuls, handfuls of purpose. Now, chapter 24, I know everyone's excited to begin. Verse 1 through 4, one big, long sentence. No pauses. The first three are the conditional uh, part of the sentence. The fourth verse is the conclusion of that. What are we going to be talking about? This is where Moses gave the writ of divorce to the nation of Israel. You remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Moses commanded us to give a letter of divorce. No, Moses didn't command. He permitted. Big difference, right? He permitted. And what did Jesus say? He permitted why? Because of what? The hardness of your heart. Because of the hardness of your heart. So let's take a look. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. When she's departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as his wife, the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. What? What's going on? One big, long sentence that Jesus was asked about. He was asked about it in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 19 is where the Pharisees come to him and say, Now, you know, it, could a man divorce his wife for just anything? What did the scripture say here? If you find some uncleanness in her. Now, when you look back at the ancient rabbi's writings, they had a lot of disagreements. Some guys said that was a very serious word. It could only be for a very serious thing. Jesus actually defines what that very serious thing is. Do you remember? He says, if a man divorces his wife or a woman divorces her husband for anything other than sexual immorality, they commit adultery. Right? So he defined for us this some uncleanness. Jesus defined it. Some uncleanness. We're talking about a serious matter. A serious matter was, <clears throat> the, was to be the reason. Now, they were divorcing if they burnt their toast, which is very similar to what we see in our society today. 
No contest divorces. I'm tired of her. She's tired of me. We're out. I'm not going to keep my vow. I'm not going to keep my promise. I'm not going to keep. Now, those things are not always in our control, are they? We all know people who maybe they wanted to stay together, but the other wasn't willing. Scripture tells us about that, right? Man or woman abandoned by an unbelieving spouse is free. Scripture lays that out. The Bible also tells us that a man who doesn't care for his family is what? Worse than an, uh, yeah, worse than an unbeliever. He's an unbeliever. So if a man who confesses Christianity abandons his family, I say, the scripture would indicate he's not caring for his family. He's an unbeliever. He's abandoned. You guys understand what I'm, what I'm saying? So as we look at this section that deals with this, <clears throat> we'll talk about a few things and, and we'll take a look at what Jesus had to say about it. But understand, this is not a commandment from God. Everybody can read that, right? When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his sight, and he writes, where does it say, I command you to? It doesn't. It's not a commandment. It's an allotment given to the people for a hardness of heart. What is God's feeling on divorce? We don't have to wonder about it, right? We don't have to wonder about it. Hold your finger here. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. And we can see very clearly God's view of divorce. Keep in mind, I said it's God's view on what? On divorce, right? I did not say it's God's view of divorced people. Big difference. Isn't it? Then the scripture teaches that all the way across the board. God hates the sin. He died for the sinner, right? Christ died for the ungodly. <clears throat> Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard your offering anymore. Nor will he receive it with goodwill from your hands. And you say, why? For what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That word covenant, you might as well put the word vow. You made your vow. Marriage was not instituted by the state. Everybody understands that, right? Who instituted marriage? God. That's why the churches fight so hard to say the Bible will tell us what marriage is. It was instituted by God, not the state. It was God's plan. Now, not only this, he goes on. <clears throat> but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why? Why did God make them one? Why did God unify them together? He seeks godly offspring for the children. He wants the children to have a godly upbringing. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. And let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says, He hates divorce. Because it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. At the time Malachi wrote this, people were getting divorced for any old thing. Every old thing, whatever thing they were upset with their wife about, they toss her to the side and go get a new one. 
In Roman culture, this is kind of interesting, for the first 500 years of Roman culture, there was not one registered divorce in the writings for the first 500 years. For the last 500 years and the decline of the Roman Empire, the record was 28 divorces by one man. Suddenly, the, the family, which is the fabric of society, especially God's society, government is built on the concept of family. The family begin, becomes despised, disrupts, falls apart. So does society. So God says, I, I hate divorce. He didn't say, I hate divorced people. I hate divorce. I hate what divorce does. But I want you to understand, God says, I want you to think about your marriage because that's a vow. And I want you to realize that God expects us to keep it. Okay? God expects us to stand by our vows. He expects us to stand by our word. He also expects us to stand by that divorce. If you are divorced and you remarry God says you're defiled why because it's not okay Jesus said except for sexual immorality if you're divorced you cause your spouse to commit adultery he slash she is defiled don't go back and marry her again don't go back and marry her well I thought it would be a good thing for us to, to get back together God says listen you can't start thinking your relationships just off the whim. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I, I'm not really thinking about it. I'm going to do it. You know, he says, think about what you're doing. If you're getting married, think about it. God says forever. If you're going to get divorced, God says, think about it. Forever. He wants us to understand the importance that he places on that, that we would place that same type of, of import for one another. Now, here's the deals. There were four uh, requirements for this writ of divorce that Moses gave. First, there must be a serious cause, not just some whimsical thing. She burnt her toast. Second, there had to be a writ of separation to be placed into the woman's hand for her protection. So that she would be protected. The preparation of this legal instrument implies the involvement of the third part, a public official. Who might also have to judge the adequacy of the alleged grounds of divorce. So this is the way it would go. Then the man was to give her a formal dismissal. She did not live in his house anymore. She went out. And God says, hey, this is... I want you to understand, this is permanent. You've made a promise of permanence. Now you're twisting it, breaking it, and you need to understand the permanence of that as well. Understand, she has been defiled, slash he has been defiled. Why? Because the divorce was improper. It's not okay to God. And now you're in sin. So what do I do now? What do I do 1 John 1, 9. If I confess my sins, he's faithful. I say, you're right, God. You're right. I didn't deal with this vow in the, in the right way. Does he want me now to break the vow I'm in today? 
Does he want me to, 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 to go back? No, he says, you need to repent. Say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. Forgive me. Does the Lord forgive us? Does he cleanse us from all unrighteousness? As far as the east is from the west, that's a long ways apart, right? Our sins are removed. <clears throat> what does he not want us to do? He does, he does not want us to pretend like it's all okay. Don't just pretend. If, if you're not clean, if you're defiled, seek the covering of God, the forgiveness of God in repentance, and then move on. His mercy's new every morning. Right? Is there any question that God loves you? God loves me. I'm a sinner. This is not the unpardonable sin. Everybody knows that, right? Marriage and divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It's a sin. How are our sins forgiven? We acknowledge before God that he's right and I'm wrong. I ask for forgiveness and he gives it. By the power of his blood shed for me, he makes us clean. And Jesus very clearly says that. In fact, the disciples in Matthew 19, they say, well, who should get married then if, if I can't just get divorced when I want to? Why would anybody want to get married? <laughs> Jesus says, well, that's the point. Don't just be flipping about what you're doing. This is a vow you're making to God. When you make that vow, what's the Bible say? Keep that vow. Well, you don't know. Yeah, it doesn't make any difference. God didn't say keep that vow except if your spouse is a real pain and then you don't have to. No, he doesn't say that. Keep your vow. Keep your promise to the Lord. Set your face like granite. And who's the one who's going who's gonna to give us victory in our marriages? Who gave me victory in mine? Was it me? Because I'm such a good person, right? I'm so holy and right. Yeah. No, God does it. How does he do it? I surrender my will to him. I move from comprehension to apprehension. What's that mean? It means I go from knowing it in my head to putting it in my hands. God said he'll do it. I give it to him. And it's not about me or how I feel or what I feel. I just give it to him. I surrender to him. And God gives us the victory. Yeah? He can put the pieces back together in a relationship that we're in now that's all messed up. Or we find ourselves in a, oh, just, it's, it's over, God. It's done. It's, he gave us a new day. We go to him because he still has a plan for us, still has a road for us to walk, still has a design for us. Still has a desire for us. Wants us to walk with him. He goes on in verse 5. Now when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home for one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. This is proof positive that it's possible. Sometimes I don't think it's possible to keep, make Kathy happy. Circle this verse. It is, the Bible wouldn't say it if it wasn't possible. Bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. What's, it, what's God saying here? He's saying, listen, I'm making an emphasis on family. Family matters to God. Okay? Family, God first, 
Family second. I am third. And then somewhere down there comes helping Jackie put chairs together tomorrow. But you take care of them other things first. You guys understand what I'm saying? God, it was so important to God. God said, if you get married, you don't work or go to war for a year. See, before you didn't understand that whole story when I said there was a betrothal and the son would go to the father's house and he would begin to prepare a place for his bride that he's going to bring unto himself and he's preparing that place for her. What's he doing that time? He's preparing. Why? Because he's not going to work for a year. He's not going to go to war for a year. He's got to have a place for her. He's got to have all the food, everything that they need. See, there wasn't flippant. It wasn't, hey, let's go to Vegas. You want to go to Vegas? Let's go to Vegas, get married. Well, but we just met last week. Oh, that's okay. It all worked. We have love. We have everything we need. It wasn't a flipping thing. I mean, There's a lot of thought to, to doing something like that, right? If it, God's word said you don't work for a year, you better have. I'm going to tell you, you want to see strain come to a marriage? It wouldn't. The cupboards are bare. There's no food on the table, no gas in the car, no money for rent. Oh, we have love. How's that work in reality? And I'm going to beat you to death with it. God wants us to really consider what we're doing. Think about what we're doing. Plan for what we're doing. He cares about family. He wants us to make it a priority. And that's what he's laying for us here. No man shall take the lower or upper millstone in a pledge that he takes, uh, for he takes one's living in the pledge. Now, this goes back to loaning. And you say, okay, I promise to pay. What do you, well, what do you give me in pledge? Oh, I'll give you half of my millstone. God says, don't take half his millstone. He can't grind no meal. Don't take away from him something he's going to use to make a living. So they weren't, wouldn't be able to do that. Verse 7, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren or the children of Israel mistreats him or sells him, that then that kidnapper shall die, and you shall put away the evil from among you. Again, God's point is, get sin out of your life. Jesus said it like this. If your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Okay? Now, obviously, we're not going to go get a hatchet and whack off my right hand or cut off my left foot. My right foot, more likely, that's the one I push the gas with. The reality is that we want to realize God wants us to withdraw from sin. Don't play with it. Now think about this. A kidnapper who sells the one he kidnaps as a slave. Does it sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, there was this little thing about Israel's 12 kids. One of them was Joseph. They didn't like him very much. So what did the other brothers do? Threw him in a pit. I, call, I would call that kidnapping. And sold him as a slave. So what were they guilty of? Sin. What, were, what was their penalty to be? Death. What did they receive? Grace. You see, it's not new. Even here, the Old Testament, what do we see? How our souls saved? How are people saved? By the application of grace. Because grace changes everything. What's the law do? It shows me that I don't measure up. What's grace do? It has the power to save. It has the power to save. Okay. It goes on and on and on. He goes, <clears throat> Take heed... In an outbreak of leprosy, that you carefully observe and do according to all the priests and Levites teach you. 
Just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you come out of Egypt. What's this mean? What was it? When you were declared a leper, you were outside of the camp, period. You left your house, family life, everything, it's over. Why? Because leprosy was very contagious. So you get outside the camp. And in case you think that doesn't apply to you, God says, remember Miriam? That was Moses' sister, and I put her outside the camp. If she had to go outside the camp, so do you. So this is an emphasis that God's making. Fulfilled. Now, because they followed the cleanliness rules, diseases didn't run rampantly through the nation. But see, today, we don't want to take away anybody's rights. So we let them hang out right in the middle of us. And then you get a group of them together, and they think, you know what? It's not getting enough press. It's not getting enough press. They don't really care about this disease because, well, they don't, they don't really care about us. So what we'll do is, let's start going around to a variety of blood banks, and let's give blood. And we'll give blood, and then what we'll find is that this disease that we have is going to be spread around to everybody else. And as they get it, they're going to have to pay attention. Worked. Oh, come on, Jackie, they didn't do it. Yeah, they did. Absolutely, without a question, they did. I know two little five-year-old twin boys dead as a result. Didn't happen on accident. Somebody didn't go, oops. It slipped my mind. That's how it occurred. In Israel, what did they do? When there was diseases that were communicable, that could be spread around, they isolated. Not as a punishment. To protect. And as a result, those diseases didn't touch them. As we take a look, Scripture goes on to say, When you lend to your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You will stand outside... And the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you will not keep his pledge overnight. You shall, in any case, return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you. And it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. He's saying, listen, your poor brother, he needs to borrow money from you. When you go, let him retain his dignity. Don't bust into his house and, and snatch a stereo or this is what the pledge is going to be. He says, don't do that. Don't do it. Treat, treat your brother right. And to God, he sees it as righteousness, how you treat people, how you treat your brother before the Lord. Verse 14, you will not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Isn't that interesting? Each day you will give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it. For he is poor and he set his heart on it. It means pay him what you said you were going to pay him when you said you were going to pay him. And lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. Keep your vow, right? At this time it was like like day laborers, right? Everybody familiar with that concept? In the L.A. area, I was really familiar with it. Day labor was a bunch of guys would go hang out on a corner. And if you were, had crops coming in or you had work, construction, whatever, and you needed somebody for the day, you'd go to that field. And you'd pull up a truck say, hey, I need five day laborers. And guys, five guys would jump in the back of your truck. You'd take them to, to where, your, where the job was. They'd work for that day. You'd bring them back, drop them off at that, uh, that same lot, and you paid them. 
The Lord says, don't do that and then bring them guys back and don't pay them. Give them what, you, what, what, was, what was expected, what was planned. The Lord says, you take care of them. God cares how we treat one another. Verse 16, fathers will not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person will be put to death for his own sin. Okay. Gets me back on the concept of generational curses. Here's what I see in a generational curse. When the Bible talks about sin being passed from a father to a son, he's talking about the example that you portray before your child. But your child does not bear your sin. Jackie, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Well, while we're thinking about it, turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18. There's other places within Ezekiel that Ezekiel talks about it, but we'll just briefly go to this. Otherwise, I'll I'll keep you guys until tomorrow when we start working on the chairs. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, right around 20, says this. Verse 19, let's go back to verse 19. You say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He will surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son will not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. The scripture lays it out. <clears throat> the Lord goes on in Ezekiel to say, No longer will this proverb be read that the father ate sour grapes and my teeth fell out. The Lord says, You're going to you stand on your own. You're responsible for your actions. You're responsible for your choices. Yeah, my dad was a no good. Who cares? Your dad's not making your decisions for you anymore. You are. You're responsible for your decisions. He's responsible for his decisions. Are there going to be traits ingrained within me from the example of my dad? Sure. But when I follow those traits, it's the same as listening to the old man. And the old man will lead me to sin every time. But you see, the old man's been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. I'm a new creation. I don't have to do those things. Okay? The soul who sins will bear responsibility for his sin, not someone else. Verse 17, you will not pervert justice. Do the stranger, the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. I don't want to sound like I'm harping on this one particular situation, but it's just another example from history. One of, I think the third richest country is not a country. It's the Vatican. And that wealth came from this. That wealth came from ripping people off, taking advantage of widows, stealing people, accusing people of devil worship, burning them on a stake and taking their lands. That's the unfortunate history of the church. Same church. It's unfortunate history. Don't ever try to stand up for church history. You can't do it. Because the church has done horrible things. Why? Because it's made up of horrible people. Shouldn't be a shock. Same horrible people that make up the world. The difference is, we are a new creation. We shouldn't walk that way. But again, during that same time period, 
those things happened is uh, the, the acceptable way to walk around the world became uh, proclaiming Christianity, not necessarily in truth. You will remember, in verse 18, you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you, do this thing. And when you reap your harvest, here's God's welfare program. When you reap your harvest in your field, forget the sheaf, and forget a sheaf in the field. You cannot go back to get it. It's for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you will not go over the boughs again. That's for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, it shall, you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. You will remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. God's welfare program. Was it a handout? No. It's a hand up. It's a hand up. Hey, you can have food. I get one pass through my field. What I didn't get in that first pass, you come pick. It's all yours. One pass through the fruit of my orchard. One pass. What I didn't get, that's there for the poor. They could come and pick. Did we have committees that picked it all for them and went and took it to them? No. No, that's God's welfare program. Not a handout, which robs a man of dignity. A hand up, which establishes his dignity. God's plan is perfect. God's word, perfect. And the book of Deuteronomy speaks to us today. Not necessarily in the exact same literal sense that it spoke to them at that time, but to us in a spiritual sense. Jesus quoted this book more than any other book in the Old Testament. Why? He's pointing to the final words of Moses, telling people how to have victory. Proper application of God's truth. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time we can come together, Lord. We ask your blessing this evening. We thank you for chairs. And God, we thank you for your provision to allow us to do it. Lord, we pray, God, that we would uh, just allow your word to, to flow through us, that we would accept the truth. It's all there for me. It's all there to help me understand, help me grow, help me learn. And I need to make a decision. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you if it's harder. I don't care. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you that it's not easier. It doesn't matter. I'm going to follow you. When I fail, I'll confess, and I will rise, and I will follow you. Lord God, we pray that your spirit would establish us as we walk with you. May we hear the words of Moses and not hear condemnation for where we failed, but simply dust off the dirt that's on us, Have a right relationship with you, Lord. Call sin, sin. And then carry on. Lord, we pray that you would continue the deliverance you've begun in each one of us. As we give you all the thanks and the glory for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close at a time of worship. We invite you to to hang out and worship with us. I think we got grub, don't we? No grub? Cookies? We got cookies. And if you're bored... We got chairs.